Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we we can never plumb the depths of your love. We speak of it, we sing of it, and even with sincere hearts, we celebrate it. And though we can see it in the person and the work of Jesus our Lord, we still, we still have but a very small, incomplete grasp of this infinite love, the God who is love. The God whose love brought forth the worlds, the God whose love designed a creation that he would flood with his own goodness, with his own mercy, with his own loving kindness. And Father, what a marvelous work you have done. Even this process, this this long history that we call the history of redemption, a determination to allow your creation to be alienated from you, that it might experience in a way it could not otherwise, the richness, the unstoppability, the power of redeeming love. You will have your creation be what you intended it to be, But in your marvelous wisdom, you would have it to attain to that consummate glory through its experience of infinite self-giving love. Father, as we gather today as your people, as we gather in worship, as we gather around the truth of your word, I do ask that you would meet each one of us according to our need. Whatever distracts us, whatever afflicts us, whatever preoccupies us, I I pray that you would set us free in our minds and in our hearts to hear, to be built up, to be encouraged and edified. Meet us each one. Attend to us, attend to my words, and may Christ be glorified in our midst. We ask this of you, good spirit, that you would do this work among us. And it is in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask. Amen. Well, we do continue in the 13th chapter of Hebrews. And today we'll be looking specifically at verses 15 and 16 
but I'd like to back up and just read with you to set the context again, get us back into the, the context, uh, back up to verse 7, and then read through verse 16, just so we kind of frame this again. And, and once more, these are the writer's summary exhortations to these saints that he loves, these saints that are struggling, these saints that are very much preoccupied and distracted. And it's his love and his concern for them and their perseverance in the faith that motivated him to even write this letter to them. And his intent was that through this encouragement, a reconsideration of the glory of God in the face of Christ and what it is that he's accomplished, that they would be made steadfast, that they would be encouraged, filled with hope, perseverance. But he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their manner of life, imitate their faith. Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied foreign teachings. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We, we, those who follow the Messiah, have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, those are burned outside the camp. And therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go out as a manner of life. Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting abode a lasting city, but we are seeking that which is to come. Through him then, through Jesus the Messiah, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And stop neglecting doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When we read verses 15 and 16, I think certainly if we read them in isolation, and this is why I wanted to take us back a little bit and reestablish the context, it's easy for us to say, okay, God wants us to be thankful people. And God wants us to do good to others. He wants us to be mindful of others and their needs. Okay, we got that. Let's move on. And it's not that that's untrue, but the writer is saying Not less than that, but far more than that. He's saying something far more uh, profound than that. And as just kind of, again, a framework for this, we need to understand that these kind of matching exhortations are set within this larger exhortation to go to Jesus outside the camp, to abide with him in the place where he is, and in that way bear his reproach. And so the writer is getting at something that is associated with, again, this radical transformation that has come in Jesus himself. Certainly writing to a Jewish audience to tell them to go outside the camp would have been a very strange thing. 
all of Israel's life was centered inside of the camp. The encampment was a place of cleanness. In the center of the Israelite encampment, even before it was Jerusalem, remember the tabernacle was in the midst of the people. And the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, is what made that encampment sacred. Outside the camp was the place of distance from God, even defilement, uncleanness. And all of Israel's relationship with God was bound up in its place inside of the camp. Violations sent you outside of the camp, sometimes even to the point where you would be cut off from the people. And Israel's relationship with God was centered in not just the encampment, but the temple at the center of it. First the tabernacle, then the temple. All of Israel's relationship with God was bound up in the temple ministration. It's whole covenant life. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that the covenant, the law of Moses, was founded on the priesthood. It came out of the priesthood. It depended on the priesthood. Israel's relationship with God, corporately and even as individual Israelites, they understood that their relationship was tied to the proximity of God through the temple ministration. And now that entire order of things had been set aside in the Messiah, not by abrogation, not by cancellation, but by fulfillment by transformation. The writer is now saying that these sacrifices that he's called for are performed in the context of being outside the camp. Go outside the camp to the Messiah and hence let us offer to him a sacrifice of praise. The context for these sacrificial offerings is outside the camp. Again, a very radical thing to Israelites, to Jewish people thinking about what it is to worship God and to relate to him. There were no sacrifices outside of the camp. That didn't happen. You had to be restored if you were outside the camp in order to be brought back to where you could partake in that sacrificial ministration through which you could be related to God. So the principle or the point of sacrifices being offered outside the camp has, I think, two, at least two crucial points of transformation, two crucial points that speak of transformation. The writer is saying first that sacrifices that are well-pleasing to God, the God of Israel, the God who in the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever, sacrifices that are now well-pleasing to God occur away from the camp of Israel and away from its sanctuary. Again, a very radical idea. Sacrifices didn't even happen outside of the camp, let alone the idea that sacrifices that are well-pleasing to the God of Israel take place outside the camp, away from the camp of Israel, away from the sanctuary. 
And the second uh, profound implication in that or significance in that is that these sacrifices aren't just offered outside of the camp. They are offered in the place where Jesus himself is. Go to Jesus outside the camp. And the writer doesn't say this, but implied in all of this is that the whole sanctuary itself and its ministration have now become yes and amen in the Messiah himself. This is very much the heart of John's gospel, isn't it? Jesus is not just the one who fulfills the priestly role and the sacrificial role. He fulfills the whole sanctuary ministration and is even the fulfillment of the sanctuary itself. The prophets hinted at that. You see it in Isaiah's prophecy, for instance, where the the promise is in Isaiah 2 that in the last days when Yahweh arises and does this mighty work, that then the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the chief of the mountains and all the nations will stream to it. And they will meet with the God of Israel there in that place of his dwelling. As I've said before, just a few chapters later, then you have the root and the stem of Jesse, who is raised as a beacon for the nations, a rallying point for the nations to all come. And as they come, and as the remnant of Israel comes, there in that place, in the Messiah himself, is the place where God is now to be encountered and worshipped. And this is very much at the center again of John's gospel, his Uh, prologue in chapter one very much focuses on that. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And in that way, now we have seen the glory of God, not the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies, but the glory of God that is in the Messiah himself, who is the dwelling of the living God. He is the sanctuary of God. And so not only is this moved away from acceptable sacrifices are now moved away from the encampment of Israel, from the Israelite economy, if you will, but also it's moved to what was formerly an unclean place, but specifically moved to the Messiah himself. All sacrifice, all worship that is acceptable to God is in the Messiah. And doesn't the writer say that through him, then let us offer through him, then let us offer. So I want to treat this in terms of the two verses. There's really two sacrifices that he speaks of here, and they're very tightly related. But this idea of a sacrifice of praise and then a sacrifice of service. A sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of service. And uh, being reminded again that the writer is writing to an Israelite audience, Hebrew Christians, it's important to note what I think they would have understood, which is the historical context or the, the allusion that he is making in speaking of this sacrifice of praise. There's a Levitical context, a sacrificial context for that, and I believe it's this thing called the thank offering. If you're familiar with Israel's offerings, they had what was known as a thank offering. And the thank offering was one particular form of the peace offering. And the peace offering was an offering that 
signified fellowship between God and the offerer. And so the premise in the peace offering was right relation to God. Sometimes, therefore, the peace offering would follow upon a sin offering or a guilt offering. But it it signified that the offerer is right with God and therefore now is bringing an offering of fellowship. And the focal point of the peace offering, of which the thank offering was a subset, the focal point of the peace offering was the fellowship meal. Both the offerer and the priest would eat of that offering, that sacrifice, signifying the priest acting on God's behalf, the priest representing God as a communicant at that fellowship meal, and then the offerer himself or herself as a communicant in that meal. God and the offerer would have a fellowship meal together, signified by the priest and the offerer both eating of the sacrifice. And because it was a volitional, it was a voluntary offering, it wasn't mandated, it was something that the offerer brought, his own, uh, as it were, kind of um, uh, self-inducement to express this fellowship with God. Because it was a voluntary thing, God allowed for various sacrificial animals to be used. You can go and read about this in Leviticus 7. But various animals were permitted to be sacrificed. But in the thank offering, the uh, specific form of the peace offering, the offerer also was to bring an offering of unleavened cakes. So you had both the animal offering and then the unleavened bread cake offering as well. And both of those were presented and consumed by the priest and by the offerer as well. And so the offerer, in the case of the thank offering, supplied fruit from his own provision. It was his animal, and there was a certain uh, you know, allowance for him to bring what he wanted to bring. It wasn't just a bullock or you know, a goat or whatever. There was, there was a variety of animals he could choose from. He brought of his own provision... That was the content of the fellowship meal that he enjoyed with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And those echoes are in this idea where the writer talks about this offering of the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So it's important to understand the general, the historical context of this, how these Israelites would have understood their own relation to God through this thank offering and bringing the fruit to God that would then be a part of this fellowship meal and now rethinking those things in the light of what has come in Jesus himself. So that's the Levitical context, but what is the nature of this sacrifice? The writer calls it a sacrifice of praise, but he specifically defines it as the fruit of lips that give thanks to God's name. He doesn't say, offer to God a sacrifice of praise along with the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. What the text actually says is, offer to God a sacrifice of praise, which consists in, or that is to say, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. 
And interestingly here, the writer, what in some versions capture this more accurately to his actual language, uh, the NAS says this giving of thanks idea, but the term here is actually that word confession. Confession. And if particularly, uh, you know, whatever Bible version you have, yours may actually show that. The fruit of lips that confess his name. The word is actually confession. And we've seen before in different teaching contexts here, this word actually has the sense of speaking the same. To confess is to speak the same. Homologeo, to speak the same or to say the same thing, to speak in the same way. And in biblical usage, it, it characteristically refers to a person's open, stated agreement with God and the truth that he has disclosed. It's agreement with God, but specifically regarding what he has disclosed through his words, through his works. It's agreement with God. And so here what these uh, translators are doing in some English versions is they're recognizing that one connotation of confession is thanksgiving. To agree with God, to agree with what he has said and done, evokes thanksgiving. This is a connotation of confession. And in that way, it parallels, and I don't know that the writer necessarily intended this, uh, but it does parallel the Hebrew idea, the Hebrew uh, correlation between thanksgiving and confession. As I've said before, in Hebrew, there's no distinct terminology of thanksgiving. If you look through the Old Testament where giving thanks, thanksgiving is mentioned, give thanks to the Lord. It's the word that really means to confess, to acknowledge. Thanksgiving in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament is a connotation of confession. It's not a distinct thing. But because confession is this thing of verbal agreement with God, it's also closely aligned with the idea of praise. And I've read this quote before. This is out of the theological word book of the Old Testament. But the writer says the best rendering of the term thanksgiving, this is in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the best rendering of the term is confession. This verb was predominantly employed to express one's public proclamation or declaration of God's attributes and his works, who God is, what he has done. This concept is at the heart of the meaning of praise. Praise is confession or declaration of who God is and what he does. This term is most often translated to thank or thanksgiving in English versions, but that's really not a proper rendering. The Old Testament does not have our independent concept of thanks, our English concept. The expression of thanks to God is included in praise. It's a way of praising praising as speaking to this idea of confession. 
we've gotten so used to the idea of confession in kind of the Catholic sense of, of going in and admitting to things that we've done. But in the biblical vernacular, that's not really the idea. It's open stated agreement with the truth as God has made it known. Confession then expresses itself. It must, if it's agreement with God, confession will express itself in thanksgiving and praise. And that lies behind the Hebrew writer's assertion that the sacrifice of praise consists in confessing or giving thanks to God's name. And the last thing I want to mention about that is this idea of thanksgiving or confession that is directed towards God's name. It may seem strange to us because to us in, in, in the world that we know, name a person's name doesn't have any connection with who that person is. Now, sometimes it may, you know, celebrate a family member, you know, a grandparent or whatever, or have some kind of history to it. But it doesn't generally say anything about the person himself. But this is a Hebraic uh, uh, idiom. It's a Hebraism. And the idea is that in, in Hebrew thinking, and certainly in the way the Old Testament speaks, a name, God's name in particular, is synonymous with God himself. See, if your name is Bob or Bill or Sam or Mary or Sue or whatever, it doesn't say anything about who you are. But God's name speaks to the truth of who he is. And the way the Bible uses that idea is that that God discloses his name as a way for him to make himself known, who he is, what he's about. And probably the most, uh, you know, easy way to demonstrate the significance of that is with God's covenant name. We use that term Yahweh, the tetragrammaton in in Hebrew, uh, often transliterated as Jehovah. But we use that word Yahweh, and where you see in your English Bible all capitals, L-O-R-D, it's that Hebrew word Yahweh. And it really means he is, but in the sense of something that is continuous and not completed, unending. That was God's covenant name. So when he appeared to Moses as he was preparing to send Moses to Egypt to do what? To fulfill his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses said, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I'll say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And really the idea more broadly is I am and always will be who I am. I am and always will be who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is Yahweh or Yehiah is he is. That's the way that the Israelite, God said, I am, and they say he is. That's why they refer to him in that way. And God said furthermore to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name 
forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. It was God's covenant name. And what it was intended to do, it, it, it doesn't express, the idea isn't that it expresses the internal nature of God himself. But who he is in relation to his creation. This is his covenant name, his memorial name. It told Israel that they were to know him as the unchanging God, the faithful God. Think again of the echo of the Hebrews writer, Jesus the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am and will be who I am. And it was the certification, it was God making himself known as the unchanging God. What I say to you today is what I'll say to you in a thousand years. What I do today will be true forever. Who I am, my intent, my purposes, my work, all of that speaks to who I am and I will never change. I'm not fickle, I'm not capricious, I'm not arbitrary. It told Israel that they were to know him as the faithful, unchanging God who always will keep covenant and who will fulfill his word and his purposes in and for the world. The God who promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now down the road from that time is still the same God. And I am sending you, Moses, on behalf of my faithfulness to your fathers and to the descendants who are a part of that promise. So giving thanks to God's name then entails expressing gratitude to him for his faithfulness. His faithfulness to his disclosed purposes, his commitment to them. And you see this even if you look at the Psalms that, you know, there's, there's often this refrain, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Confess the Lord. Well, in what sense? We even drew from Psalm 100 already, but he says, shout joyfully to the Lord, to Yahweh, all the earth. Serve him with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that Yahweh himself is God. He made us, not we ourselves, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Why? Because Yahweh is good. His covenant faithfulness is everlasting. His faithfulness endures to all generations. You see it in Psalm 105 and 106, parallel, right beside each other. Psalm 105 saying, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he made his covenant with Abraham and he loved the people and he brought them out and he preserved them. It's a rehearsing of Israel's blessedness in God's favor. And then it immediately transitions to Psalm 106 that says again, thank the Lord, give thanks to the Lord and praise him. Why? Because Israel's gone astray and here's the whole litany of their failure. But Yahweh will remain faithful and he will yet arise. The God who blessed them, as it were, in the good times and provided for them so abundantly as the covenant people and they went astray and they left him and they became idolaters and they became unclean and corrupted. But he remains the same and he will arise and he will fulfill his promises 
to the fathers and to their offspring. And both of those sitting side by side praise the Lord for his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Whether they're faithful, whether they're unfaithful. You see even uh, the same thing, and I'll just flip over real quickly and let you see this in Psalm 138, just to make the point. But as you go through, not just the Psalms, but all of Israel's worship literature, and you see this fleshed out through the prophets, and, and in the way that they speak, you see this over and over again. Giving thanks to Yahweh's name involves praising him for this faithful God that he is. Psalm 138, I will, give the, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy sanctuary, give thanks to your name for your covenant faithfulness and your truth. You have magnified your word according to your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of Yahweh, for great is the glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. For though Yahweh is exalted, yet yet he regards even the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. You will accomplish what concerns me. Why? Because your covenant faithfulness is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. So to just summarize that before then we move on to verse 16, to offer to God a sacrifice of praise is fundamentally to agree with him concerning his words and his works, not specifically or certainly not only what he has said and done, but the meaning, the purpose, the goal of his words and works. To confess him is not just to agree that he's done X, Y, Z. But to acknowledge and celebrate the significance of those things. What they mean, what they've accomplished, what they will ultimately do in his purposes. And that agreement cannot help but provoke gratitude and praise. To understand what God has actually done, you cannot help but be grateful. That inward exaltation in in an, an understanding of what God has really accomplished, his faithfulness throughout history, reaching its climax in Jesus himself, that inward exaltation can't help but erupt in words and actions that attest, affirm, and adorn what God has said and done, that confess his name. Words and actions that speak the same as he has spoken in his son. Through him, let us offer a sacrifice of praise. To agree with God's name, to confess his name, is to ultimately speak the same as God has spoken in his son.
And then by specifying the divine name, here's the third point by way of summary. By specifying the divine name, give thanks or confess God's name, the writer has shifted that object of thanks or that matter concerning thanks and confession away from personal concerns and personal benefits. And he's not saying, and I'm not saying, that it's inappropriate or wrong or irrelevant to be thankful for God's myriad mercies and his care and concern for us as individuals. I'm not saying that. And the writer isn't saying that. God wants his children to take conscious note of and be thankful for all of his mercies towards them. But at the same time, God's care and God's concern isn't arbitrary and it's not emotional. It's not, God, thank you for healing my broken finger. God, thank you for, you know, our our food per se, or thank you for this, thank you for that. All of that is not wrong. But the point is, is that God's care and his concern and his provision aren't tied to simply his, you know, his fatherly concern for us per se. God's care and his concern and his provision derive from and serve his purpose for his children unto their ordained role in his ultimate ends. What he does in and for and on behalf of us ultimately serves his his goal for us in the summing up of everything in Jesus himself. It's not an emotional thing. It's not a capricious thing. It's not an arbitrary thing. God's mercies are purposeful and intentional. And if God's interaction with us, the things for which we're thankful, if that interaction is set within and serves a larger purpose, then our thankfulness and our praise ought to reflect and follow that same pattern. So yes, we are grateful for the things that God does for us, all of the provision of this life, all the care, all the mercy. But, under, but in the sense that we, we thank him in those things, viewing the ultimate end that God has in mind for them. True gratitude, here's my last point, summing that up. True gratitude for personal blessings, for personal benefits, the gratitude that pleases God, the gratitude that is actually praise, is the gratitude that regards those blessings in terms of God's working towards his goal of perfecting a people in his son. A people through whom he will fill his creation with his own love and wisdom and power and goodness. It's not just his blessings or his benefits in this life to meet our physical needs because he doesn't want us to starve to death or whatever it happens to be. And the reason why it's important to think that way is because now we can praise and thank God when it doesn't look good. 
because we recognize that his mercies and his goodness and his favor don't look like just him answering our prayers to provide this or provide that or fix this or fix that, but that in all things he's working towards his goal of perfecting a people for himself, the summing up of everything in the Messiah. Now we can understand how this obligation of the sacrifice of praise can be continual, continual, unending. Not just when the check comes in, not just when the disease is healed, not just when the job stays in place, continual sacrifice of praise. Because God is doing all that he does, the things that we consider to be blessings and the things that we consider not to be blessings, all of that is his goodness towards his ultimate ends. The writer then goes on to say that the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of praise is attended also with a sacrifice of service. He says, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, confess his name, and stop neglecting doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. If confessing God's name means owning the truth of who he is, what he's done, the meaning of what he's done, if Confession is owning the truth. It has to go beyond verbal proclamation, verbal affirmation, verbal declaration. To confess God's name obligates us to live a truth-affirming life. And that's verse 16. A truth-affirming life. Not just truth-affirming words. Not just agreeing with God verbally. but a sacrifice of praise that is a truth-affirming life. These Hebrews, if they were to be truth-tellers, if they were to be people who truly praised God and gave him thanks according to the truth, their confession had to go to that point of a life confession, the confession of God with their lives. So the sacrifice of enacted love is the way in which he fleshes out that other side of that coin of confession. And really the way that I think this should be read to capture more the sense of it, this is grounded in again the common union. It's grounded in the truth of what God has done in forming a people for himself. This isn't just be kind to people, do some good, good deeds. This is, this is living out the truth of what God has accomplished in his son in forming a people for himself. This is what he's saying. Stop neglecting the mutual care, helpful kindness and goodness appropriate to your common union in Jesus. Stop neglecting the mutual care beneficial, helpful kindness and goodness appropriate to your common union in Jesus. For God takes great delight in such sacrifices. Another way in which we confess him, another way in which we bear witness to the truth. 
And as we've seen with, with the, this epistle and the orientation of it, what the writer is addressing, you see it here in him saying, stop neglecting. Their suffering, and this is, this is always the case, their suffering, their persecution, their difficulties were turning their gaze towards themselves and their needs, their upset, their distress, their anguish. And it was causing them to undermine, whether they understood it or not, to undermine the common union and burden sharing that should mark all of Jesus' followers. It's interesting when Luke, his first description of this brand new community of Jesus' followers in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, these several thousand that come to faith, this is the way he describes them. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 individuals, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everything's changed. The resurrection has changed everything. These were Jews and proselytes to Judaism, and they say, everything's changed. A sense of awe and signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Epitoalto. It doesn't mean they didn't have any private property. It means that their lives were tied together in such a way that they could no longer think of themselves and their lives and their livelihoods independently of one another. They had become an organism. So that they began selling their property, possessions, sharing with all as anyone had need, and day by day continuing with one mind. One mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Quite a description. How rarely does that characterize the Christian community today? And that was the essence of what it meant for these people to be a part of a new human reality born out of Jesus' resurrection by the power of the Spirit. So the writer is pointing them to the fact that their difficulties have turned their gaze inward and they're actually undermining the truth. They're undermining their confession of the name of God by their self-preoccupation. Do you see that? They're no longer confessing the truth because this has become a self-preoccupied existence. But conscious thankfulness, conscious mindfulness directed toward God's name would, the writer believes, shift their gaze back outward. It would cause them to think again on this work of this God in the Messiah, what he has brought about, what it means to be a part of this community of his children, and to also be bearing the reproach of Christ, what it means to go to him outside of the camp. 
And so God seeks the sacrifice of confessing lips, lips that celebrate, that attest and affirm and celebrate his works in Jesus, but also the confession of a conformed life that manifests that triumph and serves its goals in the world. So the writer was doing much more than saying, be thankful. Be thankful for all God does for you. And do good. Do good deeds for other people. He's saying much more than that. He wanted his readers to step back from their circumstances, their struggles, their difficulties, their challenges, and to rethink them in the light of their new life in the resurrected, enthroned Messiah, what it means to actually live out his life and bear his reproach in the world. And that rethinking would produce in them a disposition of grateful praise, whatever their circumstances, whatever their struggles, whatever their difficulties. It would turn their gaze away from themselves to their brethren who were also enduring the same ordeal of suffering. Didn't he already say that in chapter 10? The brethren are enduring the same ordeal of suffering. Turn their gaze towards their brethren, towards the koinonia, the common union that they had with one another in their lives in the world. And stand together with them. And in that way, then, they would become truth tellers, true confessors. They would become truth tellers to those outside the household of faith, bearing Christ's fragrance, attesting to the power of his gospel by being one as the Father and Son are one. These parallel sacrifices, confession with the mouth, confession with the life, those two parallel sacrifices, interestingly, at least to me, are well-pleasing to the Father because they fulfill the law of love, right? The law that is the fullness of God's Torah to Israel, the law that is fully revealed, embodied, and fulfilled in Jesus. Remember the lawyer said to Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? What is the great obligation of Israel's Torah? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. And Paul told the Romans, he said, have no obligation, no outstanding debt, except the never-ending obligation to love one another. For the one who loves his brother has fulfilled, his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the law. Why is God pleased with these sacrifices? Because they reflect both of those. Loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, agreeing with him, binding our lives to that truth, and it being manifest in the love of the brethren, and ultimately through the brethren into the world. In those two exhortations, we see what it means for us to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Easier said than done, 
But this is what it means to be confessors. This is what it means to offer the sacrifice of praise. This is what it means to offer the fruit of lips that confess his name. As we prepare for the table, I just want to read for our meditation. This again comes from Thomas Torrance. If, if you want to really dive into the significance of this thing called the church, its glory, its greatness, if you want to be thrilled and convicted and exhorted and instructed, read what Torrance has to say on the church. It is profound. But this is our meditation. I want you to listen to this. This is our meditation. Then summing up again, hear these words through the lens of what I've talked about today. But let this be the way in which we, we frame our thoughts as we prepare to come together to the table, which itself is a great act of confession, agreeing with God. Thomas Torrance says this, God is love. So that the church that dwells in love dwells in God and God in it. By making the church the dwelling place of the Father and the Son, the Spirit makes the church participate in the concrete embodiment of the love of God that is in the incarnate Son. It is in that indwelling and love that the church has its essential life. Love in the church is precisely its participation in the humanity of Jesus the Messiah, for he is the love of God poured out for mankind. In him, the church is rooted and grounded in love, and in him it becomes itself a common union, a communion, a koinonia of love, through which the life of God flows out in love toward every human being. As he is, so are we in this world. In Jesus the Messiah, the form that the love of God took was the form of a servant who poured out his life for mankind. But the form that God's love took in him is also the pattern for the common union, the communion of love in the church. What he has done to us, we are to do, we are to do to one another each serving the other in love, each spending our life in the service of the love of God toward all. In order to fulfill that mission, the church must be, must be in itself a communion of love, a fellowship of reconciliation. It must live out in its own life the reconciling love of God, which brought it into existence and determines its innermost being. The church can be such a fellowship only as it lives from out of its center in Christ. For in him, God has established a place in the midst of the world where all division, all hostility are overcome and where the mutual relations between man and God and man and fellow man that were disrupted by sin are restored. It is through the common participation of all members in this center, the center that is Christ himself, that the church is restored to its true life of mutual sharing and love. Participation in Christ carries with it participation in one another. And our common reconciliation with Christ carries with it reconciliation with one another. 
This is the communion of love maintained by the Spirit, within which the Father and Son dwell, and by means of which the kingdom of God's love is extended over all the world. That is dense, but that is profound, and that is very convicting. But that very much speaks to this thing of the sacrifice of praise, the confession of God's name that works itself out in lives pursuing, upholding, nurturing the koinonia, the fellowship of the saints, serving the good of the other, always as testifying to the God who has reconciled and healed and restored. This is much bigger than our individual lives, much bigger than our individual blessings. This is the truth of our God. Pray with me and then we'll take a few minutes to think on these things. Father, I pray that you would help each one. These may seem like lofty thoughts, but really the truth is they are Christianity 101. These are the very rudiments of the Christian faith. These are the things that were insisted upon and inculcated and nourished in the very opening years of the church. These are the things that the church understood as its birthright, as its identity, as its vocation, as its glory, as its hope. And I pray that it would be so with us. I pray that we would truly be sacrificers who offer this sacrifice outside the camp where Jesus is, that through him we would offer the sacrifices of verbal confession and life confession, words, lives, hearts that conform to the truth as it is in Jesus. I pray as we come to the table in a few minutes that we would come in that way, not as individuals, but as the body. Throughout the world, your people are gathered in this day, and I pray that these truths would bind us together, even though we don't know each other, perhaps, in other parts of the world. These are the things that are the truth of the God who never changes, the things that will define us for all eternity. I pray that we would pray for our brethren, that we would pray for those who are struggling around the world, whether we know them by name or not, that we would spend and be spent, that you would deliver us from our fixation on ourselves, our own lives, our own issues, our own preoccupation, that we would be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of the faith of others, that Christ would be exalted in the church and in the world, and that we would be co-laborers in all things, in that work of our great God towards the day of the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus, that at last our God would be all in all. Help us to view ourselves and our lives in that way. Help us to be true confessors. All of these things, Father, we ask of you, and we pray that you would even bless us as we come to the table. In the name of Christ and for his sake, amen.